It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European podcast with me, Eleanor Longman-Rood, one of the journalists at the New European. On the podcast this week, Suna Erdem joins me to talk about why Greece wants to jail the real-life heroine of Netflix's The Swimmers, and our editor Steve Anglesey and journalist Matt Withers join me to discuss another scandal-free week in British politics. No, not really. We'll be discussing Nadim Zahawai, the Taxwell inquiry, Brexit nightmares, and of course, we'll be putting more deserving candidates into the Hall of Shame. But first, how do you think Rishi Sunak is doing three months into the job? Well, in another excellent print edition of The New European, which is available now, that's issue 326, James Ball offers the Prime Minister his report card, explaining that the pervasive culture of sleaze remains at the heart of the Tory government under Sunak. Meanwhile, our website and newsletters are full of stories that take you into the heart of European politics and culture. And if you want more of all of that, there's no better way to support us than to subscribe. And the good news is, is that podcast listeners can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week. Or you can get a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. Just go subscribe at www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. If you subscribe to print and digital for £2 a week, you will get unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer, subscribe at www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. So, Steve and Matt will join us for the Hall of Shame. But first, it is a pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the New European Suna Erdem, who has been following the trial of Sara Mandini, one of the stars of Netflix's new film, The Swimmers, and has this week tackled in her feature why she is on trial for helping other refugees. So welcome back to the podcast sooner. Thank you for having me. Before we get into this rather heroic tale that's been brought onto our screens, I just want to ask you about rather a non-heroic tale that's sort of been in our news cycle recently. What do you think of Nadim Zahawe, this this tax route inquiry, and do you think he's going to be able to survive this, this scandal? Oh, I mean, who knows? Who knows? You think he wouldn't, given all the pressures that are put on him and the details that keep emerging. I mean, today there's in the Times, there's a piece saying a senior government told the Times that both Johnson and the ethics team had been informed of an investigation by the National Crime Agency into Zahawi's financial affairs. I think that was sort of closed later, but it just keeps coming. On the other hand, you know, these Conservative ministers, they just have a habit of hanging around and hoping it will go away. And it's not, it's something that's already happened anyway, you know, it's sort of 
reminds us of the eternal wait for the Sue Gray thing on Partygate. You've got um, Raphael Baer, who, economist Raphael Baer, who's written something about this, what he calls a Long Johnson situation, which I think he means like a parasite infecting the body and just hanging on and on and corrupting you more and more, even after the initial sickness, sickness has gone. And I think this sort of applies here. So um, we don't know. I mean, you know, Dominic Raab's facing sort of more than 24 <laughs> bullying claims and he's still around. So Patel was found guilty of bullying. She, Johnson said she hadn't bullied and she's let off so yeah I don't know he should go I guess it looks like um he should be on his way out there's a lot of pressure on him but I wouldn't bet on him hanging on I wouldn't bet against him hanging on a lot longer mm. and I guess as you mentioned that's the thing is that this this scandal isn't you know the first of it's the first of many sort of scandals over the this Tory government that we've seen over the past however many many years which makes us wonder that you know how long it's going to be be going through our news cycles and if he will be able to survive you know a lot of us after seeing what's happened think that perhaps he will be able to to ride this out um on to arguably more deserving topics <laughs> in your in your feature this week which is issue two uh 326 of the new european you've written about the lives and and the story the amazing story of user and sara mandini who are you know inspired the the new film the swimmers which i'm sure many many have seen um for those who don't know or haven't seen it or are unfamiliar how would you how would you sort of summarize or describe their their story so it's it's a true story um you will have seen it in the papers sort of after 2015 during the syrian crisis I mean, it's sort of a refugee story and a coming of age story and a sports story all in run, one really and um it has been nominated for a bafta for best film so it's sort of done a good job um, in in putting those together, um, at the heart of it's this horrible but heroic journey. So Sarah and Yusra are both um, competitive swimmers in Syria. Um, they've been to the World Championships, and um, the Syrian war is building and building. And uh, you know, at one point, you've got a rocket falls into a pool where Yusra is training, and this is actually true, apparently, um, from an attack. And so it becomes more and more untenable, and people who can't escape. Um, from who can escape or who can afford to escape from Syria are trying to leave the country. So, and um, Yusra and Sarah want to do this. Um, and so they, they put the money together and they, um, like many, many other refugees, um, they fly onto Turkey, then they get to both across the Aegean from the coast of Izmir and they're trying to get to the Greece island of Lesbos, which is not that far away. Um, but something goes wrong and the engine fails and the boat starts taking in water and um, there are too many on the boat anyway, so it's sort of sinking. And uh, the smugglers don't actually go on these boats. They just make the asylum seekers drive them. So if something goes wrong, you're, you're, you're done. But they were lucky, the other people in the boat, that Sarah and Yusra were both great swimmers and pretty brave. So it's in the middle of the night. Sarah jumps into the water. She ties herself to the boat and she starts swimming alongside. And Yusra does the same. And I think a couple of others who can swim go into the water a little bit. So they lighten the load and they're also guiding the boat to the island and they swim for about three hours get to lesvos everybody survives and that's that's that story has been written about in the media a lot and they've gained this heroic status and um, but it was carries on they travel through greece to eastern europe and they get to germany and that's the time when angela merkel suddenly decided to let everyone in so um they do get asylum yusra starts to swim again and she ends up going to the rio olympics as part of the new refugee team and the film ends when she wins her heat in the in the 
you know, in the swim competition, she doesn't um, get to the final. So it's not complete um, Hollywood, <laughs> but mm -hmm. she, you know, she does very well. She gets into the heat. She wins the heat. She's no, she's certainly not a token competitor. And that's where it ends. But afterwards, at the end, and the, the titles, they start to tell you the story of Sarah, her sister, who has had a very different trajectory. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's a quite a, it's a sort of linear story in a way um, of, of people who've had a sort of enhanced version of this journey that people, uh, refugees have been making for years and years, trying to cross into Europe by the sea, because that they feel that's the only way they can get across mm. and it goes very wrong and they overcome it through their their particular skills and their heroism mm. and the story is is amazing and the, I think the film's in, incredible as well and you mentioned this scene of where the you know sort of the bomb goes into the swimming pool during during a, a meet and and um Yusa is swimming and sort of everyone jumps in around her and then again I read that that is literally something that happened to her during um yeah. during her time as a swimmer which is in, incredible and do you feel that the film sort of aptly captures did you did you like the film when you watched it did you feel it aptly captured the story you mentioned that you know it's not total Hollywood because obviously it's based on reality and she didn't you know go away, away winning gold but she did incredibly well and won her heats and that's you know as part of a bigger story but what did you did you make of the film um I I enjoyed it I mean um I do write about refugees um, a reasonable amount, um, and uh, it's and it's always frustrating the way it's portrayed in the media, and the kind of people they think they are, the prejudices that heaped against them. So in this, this this showed the pick the story, a true story of two sort of I mean the class shouldn't matter, but in terms of upending prejudices, two middle class um, Arab women who. Um, you know, go across this dangerous journey. It shows that although it doesn't look that dangerous, it it is because you know Greece and Turkey aren't that far away, particularly the islands. But lots of people die in the those waters, especially at night, with the boats who are terrible. It shows the interaction with them. I think it sort of upends some stereotypes um, when you look at the kind of refugees that are going across, or the mix of them rather, and why they go. Um, so. I, I enjoyed it. And I mean, I watched it with my daughter, who was really mm. taken by the whole story. And, you know, she hears me talk about refugees, but she's never obviously had this kind of an examination of the whole thing. And I think that um, I think in that, I think it's it's serving a good purpose. It's sort of taking this. It's reflecting what happens in a more maybe accessible way, um, just because they have to streamline the story. Mm. And um, it shows them in all these different milieu, you know, I've got a bar and Damascus and then you've got them sort of not having any access to any any water or food or even toilets on the journey then they're in danger and then they end up in the Olympics it's always different milieus you just show them as a human beings that have these different experiences and I think in that sense it's successful because that's not how it's written about most of the time. Hmm. No, no, I, I see what you mean and I understand what you mean there where because I'd read a lot of reviews that said it was a sort of Hollywood-ified sort of Disneyfication of their story, which, you know, and I know that Yusuro was was involved quite a lot, I believe, um, with with the production and how how the film was made. So, you know, at the end of the day, if she's she's happy with that the portrayal of the, the sister's story, then that that sums it up. But I know what you mean. It's it's nice to see a, a well-rounded, you know, almost human side of the story because obviously you've got like you say the the dangers they face and the issues with with sanitation on their journey and things like that but at the end of the day they were teenage girls whose 
had their lives uprooted and you had um a lot of the music from Seer and Bulletproof that gets played a lot throughout the film mm. and that scene where they're sort of dancing and you've got literally sort of images of war going on behind them and flashbacks for, for forward and, and back and everything it is I think it's a very good um capturing of their story but something as you yeah. mentioned that's sort of you know touched on towards the end is how how Sarah sort of left swimming behind and actually goes goes back and looks to help others like her essentially and helps helps refugees what sort of what happens there and how has that then led to you know away from the film and in back in the real world she was then arrested in 2018 yes I mean the whole story you know they don't go into Sarah's situation partly because it was unfolding as the mm. film was being written and I, mean, I think Sally Al-Hosseini who the British um Egyptian director who who took on the film at the end she said you didn't even manage to talk to her um until you know this sort of little this meet was arranged as as she was trying to fight this this try this case um so they make sure they feature it at the end with all these statistics so what happens is that um Sarah is I think Yusra already is shown there as the more um diligent um ambitious uh competitor so Sarah is also a very good swimmer they both need to world championships but at the point we see the film Yusra is sort of really determined um she wants to win and Sarah has sort of more more involved with what else is going on in the world she's quite sort of involved interested in politics and um she's a bit of a rebel I think so she's already maybe not on the same trajectory but they're both training like you know they're both pretty good swimmers um with prospects and along the way um Sarah gets an injury um, so by the time they get to Germany at the end and Yusra starts training, she's um, she's lost more conditioning than Yusra and she doesn't think that she can train under those circumstances with, with the injury. Um, and she's been um, struck by by their own experience. So when they arrive, when they arrive in Lesbos, of the people of the island have got so um, jaded, I guess, with a number of refugees that have arrived there that they don't want to even sell them food. And... Um, there's a sort of nice scene in there where, you know, and they, they don't want to sell them food. They push them away or you do, you refugees, you go away. And then um, Sarah Yusra and another refugee, they, they say, right, we're going to behave like we're, we're rich. And then they go to a, um, a beach club, I think. And um, they, they saunter in as if they, you know, they've paid their fees mm -hmm. and they live there and they're on holiday and they grab the towels and they're going to have a nice shower, which they haven't been able to have before. So you sort of, she immediately you can immediately see the difference between how they would be received depending on where they've come from even the same people and I think she was very struck by the fact that you know they had a terrible they, they had um, a hostile reception and so she wanted to go back and help other people who like her had gone across and you know give them this water give them the blankets I mean quite a lot of the time these rescue workers humanitarian workers they, they tell us you know they're not doing heroic sea rescues they're just giving them a bit of water helping them get clothes um you know taking them to the right place when they're in refugee camps giving them swimming lessons I think that's sort of thing she did so she wanted to help in some way and she just wanted a mission and Yusra had hers in the Olympics, Sarah didn't. And I think all these things went together um, with her decision to go back to Lesbos. I think she was even, she got into touch with them, these rescue groups quite early on. So she went back quite soon and she had, she had good skills. Yeah, she was trained lifeguard. She, she could translate for Arabic speakers because she spoke excellent English. And, um, and she, and she was also passionate, sort of personable. 
So she um, started to help them. She she joined one of the rescue groups, their Greek rescue group. Um, and uh, she was there for a couple of years. And on her way back, she was arrested at the border. She was going back to, car- to, do some, to, to carry on with her university studies. And she was arrested at the border and then deported. And then um, for Sarah and um, a group of others, there's about 20 of them, I think, altogether, 22, 23, um, mm-hmm. humanitarian workers um, found themselves facing investigation. Oh, of course, when she was arrested, sorry, when she was arrested, she was put in prison um, where she stayed for 100 days. Um, and there's another um, another sort of high profile, I guess, uh, defendant um called sean binder he's got german citizenship and um he went to see what was happening to her and then he got put in jail for 100 years um 100 days excuse Mm -hmm. me it felt like 100 years to them yeah i'm sure and uh, then this trial started and it was almost this case started the investigation it was quite unbelievable they were sort of pulling these charges from what's later sort of been found to be you know flawed police reports saying they did things at times when they weren't even there they were they were facing charges of disclosure of state secrets and the unlawful use of radio frequencies for instance and an espionage an espionage seemed to be when i spoke to sean binder afterwards he was saying well they, they said whatsapp we were using whatsapp so they said we were using encrypted um communications and this was like you know unlawful use of frequencies it was uh spying and um so they put these whole whole bunch of ridiculous charges together that weren't backed up and um it not only was it draining and unfair and not very well backed up but it took ages so it's 2018 when this whole thing started they only just got their first proper hearing earlier this month Mm. um so it's been a really unpleasant time and they've just been in limbo you know what they're not in jail now but they're worrying what what is going to happen to them can they start anything else I mean Sean Binder was saying you know he's now 29 these were in their young early 20s at the start he said he's a lawyer he can't you know his his pending charges stop him uh being able to get a job it's a red flag he started to work in a shop instead he says I want to have children you're not gonna have children if you think you might go to jail for 25 years so there've been all these various charges which have been divided into two groups one other sort of lesser misdemeanors which would have put them into jail for about eight years um, which include you know the espionage type things and then there's more serious accusations the sort of felonies which they haven't brought to court yet but they sort of include you know organized human smuggling um sort of charges that would have 25 year prison terms um so these young people you know idealistic young people who went to volunteer end up facing these these horrific charges um which was obviously incredibly terrifying for them mm. and you write that i mean like you were saying that some of the details are awful and, and extraordinary of, of how this has been carried out and how long this has been going on for you write that mary lawler from uh from the united nations working on um situations of human rights defenders she said that you know as this carried on a guilty verdict would set a really dangerous precedent um and as you were saying you know the fact that after her release she was in detention for more than 100 days and then she was banned from entering Greece meant that she she couldn't attend her own trial which you say rightly was a breach of her legal rights as a defendant so 
yeah, as you say, some of the details and how this has been carried out really are, are quite extraordinary. Um, yes, and it just goes on and on, you know. So what happened at the end was this um, case, um, these charges against them, the, the indictment was so many, full of so many holes that in the end, the court, after they, after five years or nearly uh, more than four years of waiting, they went to court and it, the, the, the indictment was thrown out for basically being completely awful. <laughs> And um, so, but it's not, they haven't been acquitted. The charges are thrown out, the, the, um, because of the statute of limitations, this case can't carry on from beyond sort of next month. So in effect, the, the case has fallen because they've run out of time and they haven't done a good job. So you don't have um, an acquittal, which is what they were desperate to go to court, the defendants, so they could be acquitted because they, they was sure there wasn't a case against them and that would have relief for them and all the other humanitarian workers because the main reason of most of these trials is to there are quite a number of them um there's like 24 cases that mm. uh um, mary lawler was looking for for her report which has come out in, in march and um separately there's been um reports of sort of nearly 59 60 cases in a number of countries including italy and france um, against rescue boats which are quite flimsy, mm. um, but carry on. There's a Uvenda case in in um, Italy and going to come come to court in Trapani in Sicily, um, where there are about four German rescue workers are facing up to about you know, twenty five years, twenty years maybe in jail. So there are a number of these cases which are equally feeble, probably. You know, people haven't been. There aren't people in prison now who have been convicted and are in jail because they've done a bad thing but there are all these cases and um what they do is they they terrify these young workers and they put them off so i mean in in lesbos now i believe there is no rescue group anymore the group that they were working with is, is, doesn't exist anymore because so many were in jail and as the case was against them and others sort of quite reasonably think well i'm going to go and instead of study i'm going to volunteer out there and and help a few people and i might go to jail for 25 years and i'm, I'm not sure i can stomach that especially when it's not meant to be young young idealists that are rescuing these these refugees they shouldn't be put in that position if they come across um you know the coast guards are supposed to take them in instead you have these pushbacks as well so the context of these cases is that um these con- peripheral countries are like greece italy um are, are fed up with the refugee refugee flow coming to their countries and the rest of Europe not sharing the responsibility of then housing the refugees. Um, mm. So a bulk of them stay, you know, there were camps in it in, um, in Greece and Spain that was sort of overcrowded and uh, there's not really that much help. And so these countries and they, they, then they say, well, in that case, we're going to do this. We're going to try and put them off. Um, there's a point I was talking to a, a a Greek human rights um, academic um, who was uh, who who had lots of you know Maria Gavunelli who was talking about um, the the legal side particularly and she said well you've got to if as soon as you as soon as these refugees come on your shore you have an obligation to look after them and to process their cases and if not you're in breach of international law and you, European countries don't like to be in breach of international law because they quite like the moral high ground on these things mm-hmm. so she is saying that from the moment they've got this split second the moment they you see them and the moment they actually land 
where you're going to stop them. And um, this was been in the case of sort of pushbacks or frightening people who help them so they don't have as much help. And um, this has led to all these other cases coming up. And um, as uh, Maria Giovanelli said, she said that they, um, and we know that everybody knows that what these what these countries are doing is wrong, but they don't want to have the responsibility. So instead of saying you're doing what you're doing is breaking international law, they say, can you do this in a more elegant fashion? You know, the question isn't why are you doing that, but more can you do it in a more comilfor way? But so you, this can't be done in an elegant way. It's sort of mm-hmm. you know, so it's a very hypocritical situation. So the case of Sara Mardini and all the others is one of the many cases that are been around for the last sort of five, six years, it's sort of a trend, which is designed specifically, well, when we can't say categorically, but appears, a lot of people have concluded that they're all designed specifically to make sure there are fewer rescue workers to help get these boats, and these people onto the shores where they then have to be treated with some degree of legality and humanity. And, um, and what is happening with this particular case is that the felonies, the harder, more dangerous allegations, although they haven't been backed up, they're still hanging over them because the statute of um, limitations for them goes on until for another 15 years. So in, in that 15 years, they, they know they've been let off. They can go home, probably. They can carry on with their lives, but they know that they haven't been acquitted. They know that... The case hasn't been thrown out because there is no case and they know that they could face further charges. And that creates this atmosphere of fear, which is what um, Mary Lawler was talking about. Mm. And what and what, you know, going forward, what what that means for, you know, humanitarians in the future is something I want to come back to. But and we've spoken about how, you know, this case, you know, in, in the situation of Zara Mardini was part of a much, much wider, wider picture in, in issues that are being tackled and. But it was also quite a unique perspective because, again, something you've picked up on sort of five years on from these first arrests in 2018 and from the first investigations, suddenly one of the or rather not suddenly, but now one of the prime suspects was, you know, the hero, the subject of this acclaimed movie. It premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. She's, you know, walking the red carpet. She's being pictured as a hero. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but she was, you know, on the cover with her sister on on Harper's Bazaar Arabia and yeah. you know did this did this present as a sort of problem for prosecutors you know and, and suddenly they're sort of working against this very symbolic and, and hero-esque image um, I'm sure it did because you know most of these cases go very much under the radar and they just carry on and you know it's far away no one cares about the refugees no one cares about the cases no one cares about the humanitarian workers in a lot of the media that in you know it's far away countries so this put it front and center mm. I mean I think it would have been um highlighted in you know, the Mardini sisters are well known you know Yustra is a UN ambassador she's mm-hmm. written a goodwill ambassador she's written a mem- um she's written a, a book about their journey and her life so it would have been anyway but the fact that it came the film came out now and in film festivals they're award nominated in awards you know she's they've been in Vogue they've been in Harper's Bazaar they've been in Time um I'm sure um, there's there be sort of quite a lot of comedy going on in these prosecutors' offices when they realise mm. what's, what's what's going to happen to their pretty shoddy case. Um, so yes, and Sean Binder said, "Oh, I'm really lucky that I was going on trial with Sarah Mardini because mm. you know they're good friends, but 
this means that my case is also getting highlighted. So mm-hmm. you know, did that have a role in them in the sort of odd way it was suddenly ended? I, I don't know. But um, it was good to highlight. Um, but what would be a shame is that now they are, you know, the case, the initial case isn't happening. And the film, you know, whether it gets a BAFTA or not, it will be sort of go go away again and it won't get out of the public eye again. And it would be a shame then if this only highlights this trial and not the number of other trials that are still going on, putting similar people um, off humanitarian work and putting more people in danger. Mm. And you mentioned, you sort of capture it there when you say, you know, um, Sean's sort of saying, you know, I'm glad that I'm on trial with my friend. I'm glad I'm on trial with, with yeah. you know, Sarah Mardini when, and which is sort of funny, but also not because it, you know, there's like you say, much a larger picture at play and other trials that are going on other cases and also the issue of what happens in the future that you know as you mentioned previously that this trial could put off others going to do that work and highlights the danger that awaits them if they if they dare to to go and help you sort of write an end very movingly by saying you know if the trials of humanitarians have the desired effect others needing rescue will have no chance so where do you think that this this case, I know you touched on it previously, but where do you think this case has left sort of that that relationship and that environment between, you know, humanitarians and, and prosecutors and the courts going forward between those who want to help and those who are essentially clamping clamping down on it? Um, it's, a, it's a terrible mm. position, really. I mean, you know, also, if you assume that maybe not all these prosecutors want to be p- pushing through cases like this, because you know, it's not everybody who's against them. It's a sort of government mm. um, and you know, um, and some of the media. So it's going to be it's going to be a pretty a very tricky and dangerous position because again, even if they don't go to jail, if they are dragged through the courts, they won't be helping people on the on the coast. Nor will other people who might have taken up that role, as I've explained before, and. Um, as you know, I think it was Mary Lawler, but also quite a lot of others, the EU, EU Commission, lots of lots of international bodies are saying that you know, solidarity has been put on trial. And it's it's driving a wedge between, you know, it's in straight through this sort of solidarity where people have sympathy for other people who are having in unfortunate situations, have had to take undertake very dangerous journeys to ask for help. And um, it it does, you know, you can't categorically say it will lead to deaths. You can't categorically say the lack of them has led to deaths, because also, as I say, quite a lot of the time, you know, Binda was saying, I'm I'm not really a hero. I just stand about looking outside and see what's happening and carrying water. But on the other hand, their group, and that was interesting from from Binda again, their group also had uh, medical supplies, mm. which. Um, weren't always available and you know these kind of groups don't always have them but he said that someone from there was um from a from a frontex but you know the well-funded sort of european union border force they had actually or one of them had contacted binder one day and said we don't have any of these supplies can you help us can you help supply us with medical equipment which was very odd kind of shows you what priority refugees are maybe and shows actually the growing importance of these groups when there's a more of a um a gap because the it's not just i mean here we've always highlighted what happens with um our esteemed home secretaries whose Mm. main mission seems to kick people out of the country and preferably 
well, they're just climbing onto the shores with their fingernails. But it's not just here. You know, the EU has the deal with Libya, where um, with quite hard line, sort of unofficial, uh, not say border force, but you know, people patrolling the border in Libya grab these refugees and take them back to Libya, and then they go into detention, and awful things happen to them. And you've got Italy, particularly with their last few leaders. Um, you've got Giorgio Meloni now, who's anti-refugee in a sense. They're sort of pushing back these boats. So the whole situation of governments at the moment is is about security. You know, refugee isn't a humanitarian issue for them. It's about security. And so they say, well, if they come in, we're not secure, which isn't always borne out by the facts, but that's their narrative. And uh, so to put people off who are filling these gaps is is quite criminal really Mm. and obviously you know as we've just said this it watching this film makes you think about you know whatever country it may be government policy on on these types of issues and I know um at the new European we've mentioned before sort of you know Charlie Connolly's written a reading a recommended reading list for for Suala Brevman I think Tim Walker's (laughs) recommended something for her to go and watch on the theatre would you would you say that this film should should make it onto Suela's Suela's watch list as a as a matter of urgency um, I think it would infuriate her and I think she'd probably not really take it in, but I think mm-hmm. it would which should be put in front of her, definitely. <laughs> Whether she makes it through to the end, we'll, we'll just have to see. Um, yes. Although, yeah. of course, the, the thing with characters like Sarah and Yusri is that you could then say, well, these are the good refugees. We like them. Mm. And all the other masses are not the good refugees. So that it's, you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't highlight these people, but um, you always have to to be aware about that. And that's that's I'm sure if she had to take a conclusion from that publicly, that's what she would come to. You know, we like her. They would have come in anyway under our immigration system. It's it's the others that we don't like, and I think mm. that's always the case when you highlight one or two. Um, but that you know, that can't be helped. At least there's at least it starts the ball rolling and and tries to change attitudes, which have in the in the public space at least have hardened I mean you might go around and talk to individuals and they don't have these views at all but public discourse it's very much hardened and they're very dehumanized so any effort to highlight individual stories and then to reflect that on the wider picture so you understand that they're not unique um, mm. is a very good idea. Mm. And so the the cycle of that you know rather dangerous rec- rhetoric of sort of good Good refugees and bad refugees and, you know, good and bad migration continues on round. Um, I think that's a, you know, it's a good note to leave it on, on Suna. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You can you can read Suna's piece and all of our other features on amazing topics such as this at theneweuropean.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you very much, Suna. Thank you, Ellie. Thanks again there for Suna Erdem for joining us on the podcast. And with me now is our editor, Steve Anglesey, and journalist Matt Withers. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. So from heroic tales that we were discussing with, with Suna to somewhat rather not heroic tales, uh, this week we've seen ongoing developments in the D- Nadim Zahaway tax row inquiry. Now, yesterday, or the 25th, depending on when you're listening to this episode, was Burns Night. 
Uh, Zahawi took to Twitter to wish everyone a happy Burns Night to all who were celebrating, uh, especially if they were Scottish. Now, I learned something new this week, which I don't know if you guys if you guys knew. But apparently, after racking up debts from an excessive and rather lavish lifestyle, Robert Burns himself actually worked as a tax collector to pay off these debts. Um, as ever, politics serving quite a, a wicked sense of humour there. And, you know, if politics, you know, lines up with irony, that's also great. Um, and also, you know, talking about this situation, if nothing else, I suppose it's quite nice to be able to carelessly forget about 27 million. I usually get excited when I find a £10 note in my pocket from a pair of jeans I haven't worn for a few months. So so there we go. Um, Steve, if I come to you first, what have you made of this, this whole, you know, yet another scandal as this, as this week's progressed? Well, it, I mean, this happens in the week that people are doing their tax returns, which yeah. I, I mentioned with, with Mitch Ben on the podcast last week. And I I did my tax return uh, this week. It was a bit less exciting than the one that Nadim Zahawi finally completed. When you search for it on Google, this comes up. It's, it, it comes up with the address. And then underneath it in the little description, it says, we help the honest majority to get their tax right and make it hard for the dishonest minority to cheat the system and you know which one of those two things the honest majority the dishonest minority does Nadim Zahawi belong to um I mean they are quite you know there's no half measures at the HMRC and Jim what Jim Harrow who's the head of the HMRC said in the commons on on uh Thursday the, the public accounts committee of the commons rather I mean, that should really be fa- fatal to Nadim Sahawi. He said there are no penalties for innocent errors. I mean, in other words, that is the head of our tax-gathering body. It's a government department, a non-ministerial government department. The head of our tax-gathering body is saying that the a cabinet minister, former chancellor, did it knowingly in a way as a way to avoid paying tax. And surely part of the penalty for that, as well as paying up 5 million quid in the end, um, but about 1.3 million of which is, you know, appears to be some kind of fine. Part of the penalty, though, should be resignation. And I've been really struck in the last week, you know, Labour people, Tory people you would expect, journalists, that a lot of a lot of people have said what a decent bloke Nadim Zahawi is when, you know, when there's been coverage of this on the Today programme, on Sky, on the BBC... And um, it seems to me that if he really was the kind of decent bloke that people say he was, he would have resigned by now. And I mean, I do hope he's resigned by the time people are listening to this. But again, if he was the kind of bloke who the people who talked about his decency over the past week seem to think he is, then why did why on earth? Did he accept the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer, the person in charge of setting your taxes, my taxes, at a time when he was settling a tax avoidance dispute with the HMRC himself? It's it's just quite remarkable. Mm, perhaps yet yeah, another, you know, careless but not but not deliberate um, mistake. I mean, there. careless, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so as you say, at the time of you know the time we're recording this, he hasn't yet gone he hasn't yet resigned and if he does end up you know riding this out do you think it's sort of you know a consequence of as James Ball's written this week in this issue you know another episode of sleaze another sort of part of you know toxic and culture um corruption culture at the heart of Westminster do you think it's because partly 
in terms of public appetite we're sort of used to it and how Mitch wrote this week that you know we're so used to scandal it's almost not scandalous is that probably why he's able to to ride it out for as long as he has and if he does completely all the way is that we're almost not surprised by this point well I think that's some of it but I I mean I think you know the 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 accusations against Dominic Raab who who's also I mean they've also done this ruse haven't they with Dominic Raab where to say we'll we'll investigate this and he remains in post and we're not really going to discuss it and it can't let, let's just put a keep it all uh under wraps until uh, until the inquiry reports back um I mean the issue of Dominic Raab is, is is one that's I mean it's complicated he's a it's a bullying thing I think this at a time of financial crisis national financial crisis at a time when people are being asked to pay their taxes at a time when nurses uh, and ambulance drivers uh, and other public sector workers are being told that they can't have pay rises. I think this is, I mean, this is really serious. So I think this actually stands out above the, the general cynicism and, oh, it's just another scandal. And that's why you're seeing that, I mean, the Conservative Party have dropped four or five points in the polls over the last week uh, as this uh, as this goes on. And and let's hope they drop even further. Um, but, you know, James nailed this, I think. It is all part of a pattern. And the pattern is... For whatever reason, they you know they've been in charge too long. I mean, I think you know not only have just this government have been in charge too long, but the Conservatives have been in power for far too long over the last seventy years. And the consequence of that is that they have grown to believe that they are the natural party of power and the natural party of government, and that probity and doing things the right way is just for other people. And it's not for us in the Conservative Party. And we can do whatever we like, and we can rewrite the rules uh, if they don't suit us. Um, And I just think, you know, it's another catastrophe. I mean, people have said all week this is to do with Boris Johnson and what he did with the Conservative Party. It's not to do with Boris Johnson. This, This is something that the Conservatives have been doing for years and years because they think they can get away with it. Not just because they think they they they, they expect themselves to get away with it and they think they should get away with it. Um, I do think that the, the, you know, this, I mean, the Conservative Party really, if, they, if they're going to be a serious force again, they need to lose the next election, uh, a breakup and have another think and then come back when they're reformed and honest again. Um, but I think what is, you know, what's going to hasten that defeat is is the appalling consequences of all this for Rishi Sunak. Mm. I mean, it is a financial scandal involving millions of pounds in tax avoidance. That, that opens up all the questions about his wife and her non-dom status. And Keir Starmer tried to ex- ex- to um, exploit that at uh, PMQs on Wednesday. But again, you know, it's terrible timing for Rishi Sunak that it's happening again, on his watch, um, at a time when he is having to tell people to pay their taxes, uh, that tax burden is, is the highest that it's been for uh, many, many years, decades, um, and people are being told that they can't have the wage rises they um, that they really deserve. And I, I just think that, it, you know, having to prop up people like Rob and Zahawi uh, and employing this ruse, the the you know that is it's a flawed ruse. It, it chews up, I mean, diminishes him even further in the eyes of the public. I think it chews up his political capital within the Tory party. He's so busy telling his MPs that they have to support these people um, that it's hard to tell them to to do other stuff, and it chews up his time. And 
you know, when, I mean, odds, it's odds on that he's going to lose them both, I, I think. I mean, he's certainly going to lose one of them. And then when he does, he's going to look weak not to have sacked them earlier on. Um, so I think it's a disaster for him. Mm. Yeah, and you know, bring up Rishi Sunak there and how it's, you know, not about Boris Johnson because we now have, you know, another leader leader at the helm with a brief Liz Truss-shaped interlude. Um, I don't know if either of you saw it. There was a very good cartoon in The Times this week that sort of had, you know, the image split down in two. On one, on one side, showing Sunak when he started, you know, trying to step away from the sort of previous sleaze errors that have been in Tory government before. And he started in this image. He was there all shiny and sort of, you know, in a knight's armour, there to save the day with the word trust sort of written on his chest. And then on the other side, skip forward in three months on or so, and his armour is now slightly more brownie in, in colour with that word there uh, with the T letter sort of eroded, so just read rust. Um, Matt, how, you know, Steve, I know you've touched on it, but just how damaging is this for, for Sunak going forward? Yeah, I think it is. Um, just before getting on to that, just the point that Steve was making there, it reminded me of something I often think, which is that if politics was a video game, the <laughs> Conservatives get to play it on an easier setting. Because if this had been the last Labour government, if if Gordon Brown or Alistair Darling or, or whoever might have occupied that office had been found that they had been fined for avoiding paying some of their taxes, it would have been game over for them. Yeah. Um, but the, the fact that the Tories have, have such a pliant client media, you know, the Mail and the Express have spent days just telling their readers there is nothing to see here. Um, and that just wouldn't happen. And the next Labour government comes in. I suspect that Rachel Rees pays all her taxes uh, in, in full. But if somebody had, had made this error, the media will come down on like an absolute ton of bricks. But with the Tories, they, they have a media which tells their readers this is not something that they should be concerned with. Um, but in terms of uh, the public view, I do think this is potentially very damaging for Sunak. And I, I have seen that Times cartoon. I think it makes a very good point. Um, when Sunak first took office, he sought to distance himself from the, the sleaze of the, the Boris Johnson era mm. by saying quite pointedly, trust is earned and I will earn yours. Uh, and yet he's allowing himself to be buffeted by controversies around people to whom he, this is thing, he owes no particular loyalty. You know, as soon as it became clear that Nadim Zahawi had been fined for avoidance of taxes, Sunak could and should have sacked him there and then. It would have sent a strong, loud message that he was serious about ministers' conduct. And what's more, it wouldn't have cost him anything politically. He doesn't owe Zahawi anything. Zahawi battled his trust for the leadership. Then Boris Johnson, when trust fell, giving him his support for him to return in an article published on the Telegraph's website at the very moment Johnson announced he was no longer running. Uh, and then he only very belatedly backed Sunak. And then there's no army of Zahawiites in the Conservative Party who would turn on Sunak if their man fell. Um, and also he'd be no great loss because he's not good at his job. You know, the party chairman role is traditionally called the Minister for the Today programme because your job is to do the broadcast rounds and to talk right across policy. But even before all this, Zahari was a laughing stock. You'll remember when he told nurses to take below inflation pay rises to send a very clear message to Mr. Putin. Um, I don't know. I think Rishi Sunak is increasingly beginning to resemble John Major, um, you know, with Zahari and, and, and Rob and. Uh, Suella Bravman and everything she's done and everything I suspect she's going to do. Um, he's like Major, you know, probably an essentially personally decent, if awkward man, but a, a weak one, terrified of his own colleagues. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, a figure figure from the past. There's, you know, the, as we've mentioned before, the locals are coming up and there's been a certain, somewhat certain figure slowly lurking back into news cycles and headlines. Um, 
with this being bad news for Sunak, does it at all ever so slightly wedge open the door for the return of Boris Johnson, which he's now very obviously sort of gearing up for? He's been in Ukraine recently with a lot of people asking essentially why. Um, but yeah, it, does this is this good news for Boris Johnson? Uh, yes, I rather fear it is. Um, may I very arrogantly direct listeners to uh, an article I wrote for the website early this <laughs> week, um, headline, Does Boris Johnson See the Northern Ireland Protocol as his route back to number 10? Um, in that I looked at Johnson's increasingly public unhappiness with the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, assigned, of course, by one Boris Johnson in his desperation to get Brexit done and how he might use that to, to leave himself back. Um, if, as seems entirely possible, Sunak does come away from talks with the EU with some sort of fix to the protocol, um, probably with the most cursory of border checks, and it only passes the Commons with Labour votes. The European Research Group will declare it surrender, betrayal, a kick in the teeth to 17.4 million voters. That followed by, as you say, likely disastrous local election results in, in, in May. And they are, if you look at the, the councils that are facing votes this May, they are quite bellwether. So they could be um, they could be very, very bad for uh, Sunak. It's not not all out of the question. You could see those letters going into Graham Brady um, in the, the spring. It'll be another uh, very busy year for Mr. Brady. Um, as stated before on this podcast, Boris Johnson only needs to get on the ballot paper to retake the leadership because the Conservative Party membership still adores him. Um, yeah, and you, you can see his, his client media whirring into action, you know, a, Boris back on the front line, splashing the express on Monday on his visit to Ukraine, which, um, well, you 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 ask why he was there. It was basically a taxpayer-funded leadership campaign event. We paid for it yeah. because he's a former prime minister, but it was only done um, as part of his, his a nascent leadership campaign. Uh, then he had his, his op-ed on the front of the, the mail saying, it's all clicking into place, I'm afraid. Oh, I was Lovely. rather hoping that you'd say, you know, he's definitely not coming back. I really wanted you to disagree really, with me there. I, I, I wish, I wish I could. Um, I, I'm increasingly of the view that we're not going to see this year out without a return to number ten of Boris Johnson. Oh goodness! Well, that would be amazing, that would be amazing wouldn't it? I like the idea of him as some. I mean, he, he it, I mean, they, they have said that his appearance in. Ukraine tipped the hand of of Germany and other other uh, places into sending tanks to Ukraine. I mean that's absolute nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. I yeah. do like the idea. I mean, he, he basically went to get a front page uh, comment piece in the Daily Mail. I do like the idea of him as some kind of a black, you know, the, the, the man from with the, was it only oh, was the milk tray man, wasn't he? Who who was a sort of James for, for younger younger listeners and indeed younger presenters of this podcast? He was a <laughs> he was a figure who was in um, adverts who was sort of James Bond style, and he would appear in exotic locations. Um, he'd just pop up and he would deliver a box of milk tray in a in a uh, mysterious fashion. And maybe Boris Johnson will do that. He'll just pop up in the world's trouble spots when he thinks he can get a front page in the Daily Mail out of it. So uh, good luck to him with that. I'm glad you added that description in there because, as you mentioned, as as youthful presenters, that cultural reference did slightly go above my head. But now I, now I'm I'm completely on your page. So that's no. I think that's he, okay. he's more the. Uh, I think he's more the secret lemonade drinker for the uh, for the younger listeners. <laughs> oh dear! So from careless mistakes to potentially shameless mistakes, or just shameless behaviour. Um, because Nadim Zahawi was certainly not alone in questionable behaviour this week, which brings us to the Hall of Shame. 
Um, I'll kick us off with first and foremost going in there this week from me is Kemi Badenoch. The International Trade Secretary kicked off earlier this year by comparing free trade agreements to motorways under the very encouraging headline from Politico, which said that the trade minister thinks there's more to life than trade deals, which really fills you with confidence as the year starts. Um, She said that there wasn't actually anything wrong with any post-Brexit deals that had been done. The issue was that British businesses weren't actually using them. So it's actually, you know, British businesses that are at fault again. Uh, And this week she announced on social media that her latest trade priorities and also in an address uh, are to slash 100 more trade barriers to reach 1 trillion in exports by 2030, become Europe's number one investment destination, seal deals with India and also to defend free trade by strengthening supply chains and standing up to protectionism. It's going to be a very busy year for Kemi Badenoch. Um, I don't know if either of you saw this or have read the post at all, but there was one sort of key element missing from it, which was how. Um, She didn't quite outline that, but maybe she's just hoping that no one really was paying much attention. Um, Steve, who are you putting into the Hall of Shame this week? Has Anne Widdicombe earned her usual spot again? Well... Of course she has. I mean, I, I don't know whether you saw this. This Matt Withers has reminded me of this before by talking about the Tories playing a, a political video game on easy setting. But the other day on the Jeremy Vine show, um, which I don't normally watch, but I, I did happen to see, um, Anne Widdicombe was, was was playing Mario Kart. I think they they she'd never played a video game before. It did it did show. Um, and the highlight of this, uh, I mean, what a spectacle it was of Anne, Anne Widdicombe playing Mario Kart. Um, but the highlight of it was when one of the other panelists, I think it's Marina Perkis, is she called, said, uh, "You would what what you would do? You would like Anne? You would like this game called Grand Theft Auto?" Um, it's about uh, building a crime family and running around doing illegal things, uh, much like being in the Conservative Party, which I thought was great. Um, but Anne Widdicombe has, I am afraid to report, been writing again as well. And um, she wrote uh, this this week about uh, a public figure. Um, you, you see if you can guess who it is, Matt, Ellie. Uh, so far, he has been convicted of nothing, but he has lost everything. What sort of justice is that? Who do you think she was talking about there? Oh, it's it's not Prince Andrew. It is. <laughs> <It's> Prince... <laughs> oh no, he's he's been convicted of nothing, but he's lost everything. Um, Prince Andrew, he, he's lost everything. He, uh, apart from he, he lives in uh, the Royal Lodge in Windsor, which is a Grade Two listed country house worth thirty million pounds. Um, he's got twelve million pounds in his bin uh, from selling his ski lodge in Verbia. Which he uh, he did last year. He sold that for twenty million pounds, making a, a twelve million pound profit. Don't begin to think that that then went to um, his accuser because his mum paid that up. His brother is paying the bills, uh, his bills, um, and you know, even more upside. They've just launched a paneer ticker thin crust at the Woking Pizza Express, £16.45, that is. So I think Prince Andrew, rather than having lost everything, he's going to, he's going to be OK. Um, I wanted to put David Davis in the, the Hall of Shame um, simply because this is the week that it was revealed that Britain's car industry uh, has got its lowest output for 66 years. Uh, British car production has gone down 40% since 2019, uh, which is the last full year that we were in the EU under the transition period. 
Um, and of course, David Davis uh, said in 2016, uh, the day after Brexit, the first calling point of the UK's negotiator will not be Brussels. It will be Berlin to strike a deal, uh, absolute access for German cars and industrial goods in exchange for a sensible deal on uh, anything, everything else. I mean, David Davis didn't even know that Germany weren't allowed to cut a deal on their own, even if they wanted to. Uh, and we made him the Brexit secretary. Um, and finally, from me this week, uh, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but Jacob Rees-Mogg has been given his own TV show on GB News. Um, and I had some ideas for titles for Jacob Rees-Mogg's TV show. Um, pointless, uh, absolutely fatuous. Would I lie to you? Yes. Um, one for Rick Mail fans here. Filthy rich and batshit. Uh, my family's fortunes would be one. I thought he could do a version of the world's strongest man called the world's strangest man. Uh, and if he took his programme around Britain, he could call it the Antiques Roadshow. Well, there you go. I can't say I'll be watching, even if those titles are chosen. But there we go. You also mentioned, you know, what Anne had to say about Prince Andrew. There is also now a slightly questionable musical that's been made into the from the Holder Backle, I believe, on Channel 4. So, you know, perhaps he has lost something. But there we go. Um, Matt, what about you? Who are you putting in there? Well, I'm just thinking about which character Anne Whittacombe would have chosen on Mario Kart. I suspect <laughs> I suspect she would have been a Bowser woman, Anne, yes. um, but I, I can't be sure. Um, my first entrant into the Hall of Shame this week is, not for the first time, Jonathan Gullis, Conservative MP, Junior Minister for all 50 days of Liz Truss's Premiership, self-styled Marxist hunter, an answer to the question, what if Gareth Southgate but evil? Gullis attracted attention this week in Prime Minister's Questions when the Labour MP, Talib Siddiq, asked Rishi Sunak about reports uh, dozens of asylum-seeking children had vanished from a hotel in Brighton that's run by the Home Office. Before the PM could answer, Gullis hollered from his sedentary position, well, they shouldn't have come here illegally. Following a backlash to his comments, Gullis doubled down, saying of the literal disappearance of children snatched from the streets by traffickers, Labour's open-door approach to illegal migration shows they're out of touch with the public, out of ideas on migration, and explains why they've been out of government for over a decade. Gullis clearly believes these most vulnerable of children have full agency in their lives. By the way, before entering Parliament, Jonathan Gullis was a teacher, Let's hope he doesn't return to the profession when he loses his seat at the next election. And uh, joining him in the Hall of Shame is James Cleverly, Foreign Secretary and definitive argument against nominative determinism. Cleverly was the minister put up for the Sunday media round this week when the dominant story of the day was Nadim Zahawi's tax avoidance. Alas, Cleverly declined to answer any questions on the matter, saying he knew nothing about the story in all that morning's newspapers. And the reason... I spent the whole of last week in the United States of America and in Canada. I arrived back in the UK early on Friday morning on an overnight flight before then going on to engage with my constituents through Friday and having a bit of a rest and doing some shopping on Saturday. With such skills in managing the media, perhaps cleverly should return to the party chairman role that's almost certainly about to become vacant. Oh, there we go. Um, one more from me and... I think you've put him in here before, Matt. But joining um, joining these is Lee Anderson. And what was it you called him? Was it last week or the week before? If black pudding became I, sentient, I think I, I think he was the answer to the question. What if black pudding became vaguely sentient? 
I forgot the vaguely there. That's that's the really important bit. Um, so I actually saw this just after we'd finished recording last week, but it does seem a real shame not to mention it. So 30p Lee took to Twitter last week to essentially, I don't know if either of you have seen this, I'm assuming so because it's gone a bit viral, but to to show off a staff member's salary, yes. it was bizarre. So in the in this post, he wrote as a caption for a staff member, because I don't like to name her as she's since um, asked to not be, but she, so this post says... She works for me. She is single and earns less than 30k. She rents a room for 775 per calendar month in central London, has student debt, uh, spends 120 a month on traveling and saves money every month, goes on foreign holidays and does not need to use a food bank. She makes my point really well. I mean, it's just don't quite know where to start. Um, MPs have called him out for using staff members in a game of political football, which is exactly right and absolutely what he's doing. Others have mentioned that it doesn't really prove his point at all because that staff member in question, as he really weirdly pointed out, was single, um, also doesn't have any children, so therefore doesn't need to, you know, consider anything that goes with sort of having a family of your own or rent a family-sized room. Um, essentially, not to get bogged down in it, but it was just a really bizarre, tactless, untasteful way to wrongly make a point. Um, but then again, what else can we expect? Because he also regularly says that Brexit's going swimmingly. So I don't know what else we would expect. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey, me, Eleanor Longwynrood and Matt Withers. Thanks to our guest, Suna Erdem. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our producer, John Dakin. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe and give us nice ratings and lovely reviews wherever your podcast provider allows. You can join our Facebook readers group. And while it still exists, you can follow us on Twitter at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you like, at elongwin underscore rude. Uh, Steve, where can people follow you on Twitter? At Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And Matt, what about you? Where can people follow you on Twitter? At Matt Withers, nice and simple. Perfect. Uh, a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. So until the next time we meet, it's goodbye from Steve. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Matt. Farewell. And it's goodbye from me. So long, snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.